Tonight, I'd like to talk with you about the restoration of the gospel. That's why we're here, because there has been a restoration of the gospel. I would like to talk with you from the standpoint of seeing the restoration in the true perspective that we Latter-day Saints should understand, a perspective of some 2,000 years, because the restoration of the gospel started about 2,000 years ago. You remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, established the truth when he was on the earth. And we Latter-day Saints believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, as the Son of God, and as the Creator of all things. We Latter-day Saints are committed to the doctrine of a special creation, and we believe that Jesus, under the direction of his Father, was the Creator. As John said, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He came to the earth, as we say and as you know, and gave to us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it seemed that always with the Christians there has been a spirit of dissension and division. And apostasy started even in the Savior's own day. And you remember that as early as the events that are recorded in the sixth chapter of John, apostasy was evident. The people of his day professed to believe in the law of Moses, but as the Savior himself said, none of them lived it. And when he began to preach his true and pure doctrines to the people of that day, and they contrasted his purity of doctrine with the false teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the other Enes that were running about. <laughs> they got angry with him, and you remember that some of them sought to take his life. And you remember, too, that many who had been following him fell away from him. And as the scripture says in the sixth chapter of John, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He continued in his work. He fed the 4,000, he fed the 5,000. But you remember that when the time came for the first meeting on the day of Pentecost following the crucifixion, and the resurrection that only 120 people came. That's all. The only ones who had the courage and the faith to come to the meeting, 120 people. But then the missionary work got underway, and you remember that in one day after Peter's great sermon, that 3,000 people were converted to the truth. 
Missionaries went abroad. You remember that the Savior had commanded that they go abroad into all the nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. And they began to preach, and many converts were made, but almost as rapidly as conversions were made, apostasies likewise occurred. You remember what happened in Corinth? Over in Corinth, you remember there, the people began to even repudiate the Christ and no longer believed in his resurrection. And you remember that Paul argued with them, as you see in the 15th chapter particularly of the first uh, epistle to the Corinthians, where he argued with them about the resurrection and finally let them know that Christ truly was resurrected and that as an Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But he called their attention to the fact that even there in Corinth, at least four different denominations had started, even in Paul's own day. This idea that there was just one Christian church way back in those early centuries is one of the greatest mistakes that people make because Christianity in the, within the first hundred years and then subsequently was splintered so that within a hundred years of Christ there were at least 30 different Christian denominations, each one opposed to the other. In Corinth at the time Paul wrote, there were at least four of these denominations, as we say. One of them said, I am of Paul. Another said, I am of Apollos. Another one said, I am of Cephas. And there were some who said, I am of Christ. And then you remember that Paul upbraided them and said, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he said, Is Christ divided? Christ wasn't divided, but his so-called followers certainly were, and they've been splintered and divided ever since. This great apostasy was predicted, as you know very well. Now the people of that day had the idea that the second coming of Christ was going to take place in the day in which they themselves lived. And the apostles began to dissuade them from this position and began to tell them that there should come a great apostasy before the second coming of Christ. And so it was that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in his second letter, let no man be deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. I've been very interested in the way the newest Catholic Bible puts this. Remember they had a new Bible published just two years ago called the New American Bible. And this verse in 2 Thessalonians second chapter in that, in that version says this, we beg you, brothers, not to be so easily agitated or terrified into believing that the day of the Lord is here. Let no one seduce you, since the mass apostasy has not yet occurred. And then, as you know, the Catholics put footnotes at the bottom of their pages, and the footnote on this particular scripture says, they should not allow themselves to be duped into this way of thinking, for a religious apostasy is destined to precede 
the Lord's second coming. When I was in England, I bought two or three of the Bible versions that the Catholics put out over there. One of them was published in 1947, and to this uh, particular scripture, it has this footnote in the 1947 issue. This seems to refer to a great apostasy from the Christian faith preceding Christ's return. I thought that was very interesting. And then in 1955, the uh, British published, uh, or rather the Catholic Church in Great Britain published the Knox version of the Bible. And I'll read you just a verse from that uh, on this reference. Do not let anyone lead you astray. The apostasy must come first. You see, it was well established. It was well established that there would be a great mass, to call their, to use their word, a mass apostasy from the Christian faith before the second coming should occur. But then they were also, these early brethren, quite explicit in saying that likewise there would be a great restoration of the gospel before the second coming should take place. The Lord would not leave us without his truth. He knew by his foreknowledge that there would be this mass apostasy, but he also recognized that there would have to be a restoration of the gospel prior to the second coming of Christ in order to prepare the way for the second coming of Christ. And so a great new restorer came to the earth. You remember what Peter said. He and John had come to the temple and had uh, entered by the gate beautiful and there was a man begging who had been crippled from birth. And you remember that Peter healed the man, and this attracted a great crowd who came about. And so Peter, being the great advocate that he was, took advantage of this opportunity, you remember, and called them to repentance, and told them that the same Christ whom they had rejected would come again, but that he would remain in heaven. His second coming would not take place until the time of the restitution of all things whatsoever God had spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets from the beginning of the world. I was interested to look up some of these other translations to see whether King James was on target there also, and of course he was. The Knox Catholic Bible puts it this way, Then he will send out Jesus Christ, who has now been made known unto you, but must have his dwelling place in heaven until the time when all is restored anew. Isn't that interesting, the way they write that? These Catholics write good scriptures. <laughs> until all is restored anew. Now, the Catholic Bible of 1947, to which I first uh, referred, says, whom heaven indeed must receive until the times of the restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning of the world. The revised version of the Protestants says, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke 
by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. The Rotherham version puts it, the due establishment of all things. The 20th century version, the universal restoration. The Weymouth version, the reconstitution of all things. And of course, our good old King James, which we love best of all, explains it. The time of the restitution of all things whatsoever God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets from the beginning of the world. And of course, this is one of the things that we love so much. We Latter-day Saints must realize that the restoration of the gospel was a mighty drama, and it didn't take place just with Joseph Smith. It started long before Joseph Smith. If God was going to restore the gospel in the last days, where would he bring it? And under what conditions? Now, of course, the scripture says that an angel should fly through the midst of heaven, bringing the everlasting gospel back to the earth. And we know that there was to be a great restorer. The Lord would send forth his messenger, and then he would suddenly come to his temple. We know those things, but the world doesn't, and we too often don't put this in its, proper, in, their, in its proper perspective, as I say. And I'd like you to see how the gospel was restored step by step over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years, literally 2,000 years. Now. The Lord knew that he would not be able to restore the gospel in any of the European countries or any of the other countries of the world. They were controlled by wicked people. They were controlled by despots and dictators, monarchs who were absolute monarchs. And there was no religious freedom anywhere in the world. When my wife and I one day drove into a little town in England, we saw a public square in the middle of the town, and in that square was a beautiful monument about 20 feet high, a shaft of granite. And we were curious, as we always are, and went over to look at that shaft. And there on the tablet affixed to it was the statement that this monument was to mark the place where a 17-year-old boy was burned at the stake by the controlling church because he read a translation of the Bible. And as my wife and I stood there looking at that, I turned to her and said, what in the world would they have done to a boy who said he had seen God? There was no religious freedom anywhere, and God knew that. But he knew that this restoration was to come, and he prepared for it. And so he reserved the Western Hemisphere as a place on which he would work out the conditions under which the gospel could be restored. And he did not allow any colonization of the Western Hemisphere until he was ready for them to come. Now, you and I know that a number of ancient peoples discovered, ancient Amer discovered America anciently 
And they did it before Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus was not the first man here. Think of my friends, the Norsemen. I guess I'm qualified to call them a Norseman with the kind of a name I have. The Norsemen came over to Vinland, as you remember, and there were others. It's interesting to read about them, but mark you, not one of them established permanent colonization. God would not allow them here. Colonization was preserved and reserved for the people that the Lord himself would bring to this country. And so even though there were earlier discoveries of America, none of them counted so far as God was concerned because he had his eye upon Columbus. Now the first Nephi gave us a very, very interesting scripture. And I hope that when you read the Book of Mormon, you'll read many, many times the last chapter of First Nephi, which refers to the day in which we're living. And I think it's one of the most significant <clears throat> of all of the chapters in the Book of Mormon. Beginning in this chapter, which is 22, Nephi begins to talk about this land and the Gentiles who in latter days would be brought to this land. And so he discussed that at some length. And then beginning with verse 7, he says, And it meaneth that the time cometh that after all the house of Israel have been scattered and confounded. That would be the scattering of the ten tribes and the Jews to all parts of the world and so on. That the Lord God will raise up a mighty nation among the Gentiles, yea, even upon the face of this land. Now get this, he's talking about you and me and the United States. In the latter days, God would raise up a mighty nation of the Gentiles on this land, and by them shall our seed be scattered. And as you know, of course, through the Indian Wars, how the Indians were scattered by the early Americans. And after our seed is scattered, the Lord God will proceed to do a marvelous work among the Gentiles, which shall be of great worth unto our seed. Wherefore it is likened unto their being nourished by the Gentiles and being carried in their arms and upon their shoulders. And it shall also be of worth unto the Gentiles, and not only unto the Gentiles, but unto all the house of Israel, unto the making known of the covenants of the Father of heaven, unto Abraham, saying, In thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Now what does that language mean? It means that in the latter days upon this western hemisphere a great nation of the Gentiles would be established and that from this nation of the Gentiles the true restored gospel would be taken to all the house of Israel all over the world. The Savior said essentially the same thing in the 21st chapter of 3rd Nephi and I'd like to read just one verse that he said in regard to this. He also was talking about the Gentiles who would occupy this uh, land in these latter days. And he said, For it is wisdom in the Father that they, that is the Gentiles, should be established in this land and be set up as a free people by the power of the Father, that these things, the gospel, might come forth from them unto a remnant of your seed that the covenant of the Father may be fulfilled, which he hath covenanted with his people, O house of Israel. Now here's the Savior of the world talking to these Nephites in America after his resurrection, 
telling them that in the latter days many Gentiles would come to this land and that the Lord God by the power of the Father would establish a mighty nation by act of God here in this land of America for the one purpose of having the gospel go from them to the rest of the world. Isn't this significant scripture? It's terrific. And how did it all come about? Nephi gave us some further explanation in the 13th chapter, as you call, recall, of 1st Nephi, where he tells about the vision that he was given by the Lord at that time. And one of the first things that he said was, as he talked about the Gentiles in Europe, separated from the seed of my brethren by many waters, so that was in Europe, I looked and beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by the many waters, and I beheld the Spirit of God that it came down and wrought upon the man. And he went forth upon the many waters, even under the seed of my brethren who were in the promised land. Now notice here, the time had come. Now the Lord had control of the discovery and the colonization of America. And the Lord, uh, the, the Nephi was told that there was a man among the Gentiles who was wrought upon by the Spirit of God, and under that inspiration he came to America. I won't read you all I have here about Columbus, but I'd like to read you just a couple of things. Here is uh, almost read to you from George Washington. And I'd like to do that sometime. I tell you, that's uh, marvelous what he said about this country. But here's what Columbus said, among other things. I have seen and truly I have studied all books and cosmographies, histories, chronicles, and philosophies, and other arts for which our Lord with provident hand unlocked my mind, sent me upon the seas, and gave me fire for the deed. Those who heard of my enterprise called it foolish, mocked me and laughed, but who can doubt but that the Holy Ghost inspired me?" The words of Columbus himself. When he came to King Ferdinand, he said, I came to your majesty as the emissary of the Holy Ghost. And when he stood before the clergy, the clergy of San Esteban, he insisted to them that he must be regarded as a man inspired. Columbus' own son, Fernando, in a biography of his father, quotes the discoverer as saying on one occasion, God gave me the faith and afterward the courage so that I was quite willing to undertake the journey. And the last will and testament of Christopher Columbus includes this expression, in the name of the Most Holy Trinity, who inspired me with the idea and afterwards made it perfectly clear to me that I could navigate and go to the Indies from Spain by traversing the ocean westward. Columbus was inspired, and Nephi looked upon him and beheld this man separated from the seed of his brethren by the many waters, and says, Nephi, I beheld the Spirit of God that it came down and wrought upon the man 
and he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren who were in the promised land. And it came to pass that I beheld the Spirit of God, that it wrought upon other Gentiles, and they went forth out of captivity upon the many waters. Under the direction of the Almighty, colonization began. And who, upon what kind of people would the Holy Spirit manifest itself? Why, the pilgrims and the Puritans, weren't they worthy of the direction of the Spirit of God? And they came, and many others. And then Nephi said, I beheld that it, I beheld that the Gentiles did prosper upon the land and, and did obtain it for their inheritance. And then it's an interesting thing. He describes them and he says, I beheld that they were white and exceeding fair and beautiful, like unto my people before they were slain. And then he saw the Revolutionary War. You see, God was going to set up this nation. And he did it first by reserving the land so that undesirables didn't colonize here. Then he sent his own man to discover it. Then he brought the colonization effort on. And after that, he gave to them their political freedom. Now, you remember that they were under Great Britain. And you remember, too, that Nephi said, And I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and upon the land also to battle against them. And who was the mother country? Of course it was Great Britain, wasn't it? And he said, the mother Gentiles. Significant, isn't it? Even he knew that they were under this uh, peculiar King George. He knew that just as well as anybody. And he knew that it was the mother country against the colonists. And he knew that they would come by land and by sea. I, I still enjoy reading Paul Revere's ride. Do you enjoy reading that? And do you remember the lanterns, one if by land and two if by sea? And they came both ways, by land and by sea, according to both history and Nephi. <clears throat> and I beheld that the power of God was with them, that is, these colonists and also that the wrath of God was upon all those that were gathered together against them to battle. And I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. So you see, God gave them liberty. And if I had another hour here, I'd read to you what George Washington and some of these others say how God gave them the victory on a silver platter virtually in fulfillment here of Nephi's vision. But just being set free wasn't enough. They had to have a government. And so God provided that government also. And you remember that it was a constitutional government and that God raised up the men who were to write that document. And it should be such that according to the laws and constitution of the people which I have suffered to be established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, should provide free agency for everybody, that every man may act in doctrine and principle according to the moral agency which I have given him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. Therefore, it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. And for this purpose have I established the constitution of this land 
by the hands of wise men whom I raised up unto this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood. So you see the steps we're taking now. There was the great apostasy. Then there was the preservation of the Western Hemisphere. Finally came Columbus, the colonization movement, the Revolutionary War to make the people free here. And then God gave, a, gave them a constitutional form of government which guaranteed free speech and free religion, free assembly and free press. All as an act of God leading up to one thing, and that was the restoration of the gospel. And it was only a half a dozen years or so after America got established as a constitutional nation until the great spirit in the pre-existence was sent to earth to be born on December 23, 1805 in a little farmhouse and his name was Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. He was, he was given this great and mighty mission. And what a wonderful thing it was. It was under the umbrella of a marvelous inspired constitution that this church was restored. It couldn't have been restored anywhere else because at that time there was no religious freedom anywhere. Only in America. Only in America. And God raised up Joseph Smith for that purpose. And it was a marvelous thing that he did. And now what's happening? The gospel is being taken from this nation to all the other nations. All of them. Now we haven't got a very good start yet. We have missionaries in 52 nations. But there are 145 independent nations plus 75 other political units. We haven't reached a fourth of them. And yet the scripture says that we are to preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and then shall the end come. Then will the Savior come. We have a big job, haven't we? The Book of Mormon has been translated into 39 languages and published in 25. But the Bible has been translated in 10 times that many languages. 253 languages the total Bible has been published in. And portions of it, such as the New Testament, in 1,457 tongues and dialects. We have a long way to go. But the Lord is going to shorten his work, he tells us. And he will shorten his work. It hasn't been so very long ago since we merely had a handful of missions in the world. Today we have 112 missions. And if you don't think the Lord isn't hastening his work, just realize that in the last two years, 11 new missions have been organized. And since last Christmas, six new missions have been organized. We're going to get to these nations, but we just have to remember that we have a long way to go. You'll remember Micah, won't you? Micah said this, In the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord's house 
<clears throat> shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it, and many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Who's going to build the new Zion? We will. We will, here in the United States. Jackson County, Missouri. Some people are frightened of the United States collapsing. The United States will not collapse. The wicked in the United States will, and they will be destroyed. The Lord has said that. But the Lord will preserve the righteous, and the righteous are going to carry on right until the second coming of Christ. And the Lord shall reign over them in the Mount Zion from henceforth and forever. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. <clears throat> Again, coming back <clears throat> to this first Nephi, the last chapter, and I do hope you'll read it. Nephi there tells about the fact that destruction will come here in this land to the wicked, but he says he will preserve the righteous by his power, even if it so be that the fullness of his wrath must come and the righteous be preserved even unto the destruction of their enemies. Wherefore the righteous need not fear, for thus saith the prophet, they shall be saved, even if it so be as by fire. And then he repeats it. For behold, the righteous shall not perish, for the time surely must come that all they who fight against Zion shall be cut off. And then again he says in another verse, same chapter, the righteous need not fear, for they are not those who shall be confounded, but it is the kingdom of the devil which shall be built up among the children of men, which kingdom is established among them which are in the flesh. All those who belong to the kingdom of the devil are they who need fear and tremble and quake. They are those who must be brought low in the dust. They are those who must be consumed as stubble. And this according to the words of the prophet. How long will the United States stand? Keep in mind that the United States was established in order to provide the climate in which we could have a restored gospel. The United States was established in order that there could be the true church again on the earth, that it would be restored in our day, but under the direction, that is, under the protection of this great nation of the Gentiles. Remember what the Savior said and what First Nephi said, that this nation was to be set up with this one purpose in mind of bringing the gospel to the rest of the world. And that's going to be done. And the righteous will be preserved here in this land to do it. And this nation will be preserved, although the wicked will be destroyed. How long will the United States last? As long as the Lord needs home base for the carrying forward of his work in the earth. And America is home base. You from other lands don't need to become jealous of America. Who is jealous of Jerusalem, where Jesus was born? 
We're not jealous of that country. We merely recognize the hand of God as in sending him there. And we must recognize the hand of God in sending the gospel here to this land. And you learn to love America because it's God's land. What does Brigham Young have to say about how long will there be in America? Read this in Brigham Young's discourses in that chapter on government. <clears throat> when the day comes in which the kingdom of God will bear rule, the flag of the United States will proudly flutter unsullied, unsullied on the flagstaff of liberty and equal rights. Without a spot to sully its fair surface, the glorious flag our fathers have bequeathed us will then be unfurled to the breeze by those who have the power to hoist it aloft and defend its sanctity. Doesn't that thrill you? And then he says, how long will it be before the words of the prophet Joseph will be fulfilled? He said, if the Constitution of the United States were to be saved at all, it must be done by this people. It will not be many years before these words come to pass. If the Constitution is sustained on this land of Joseph, it will be done by us and our posterity. And so what's our situation? Our situation is that we are the covenant people of God and the Lord depends on us to do this job. We must take the gospel to all the world, to all of these scores and scores of nations we haven't even yet touched. Who's going to do it? We, the missionaries of the church, we'll do it. You will do it. You are missionaries. You're under covenant with God, aren't you? Every one of you who has been baptized is under covenant with God. You've taken upon you the name of Christ. When you've partaken of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, you've pledged to high heaven that you'd be true to him, taking his name on you, keeping his commandments, always remember him, never forgetting him, and being willing to do the work that must be done. So what must you do? You must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Of course, seek careers here. We need to build the kingdom. We need strength. And we need careers in the world to help us to do that. But remember that the careers must be secondary to the great career, which is to be the Latter-day Saints that are to prepare the way for the second coming of Christ. That's our great career, to be good Latter-day Saints, to build the kingdom, to prepare for the second coming of Christ. So let us be true to our covenants. Let us never forget that we have taken upon ourselves the name of Christ and that we have pledged in a most sacred manner always to remember him, always to keep his commandments which he has given us, that we may always have his spirit to be with us and that we may be thus true, I earnestly pray, in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.